Music to Code By is taking the developer world by storm. Now there are six extra tracks available online in addition to the original three. That's nine Pomodoros of pure productivity just waiting for you. Check them out at mtcb.pwop.com. Net Rocks, episode 1237, with guest Bill Wagner. Recorded Tuesday, December 15th, 2015. That's right, it's time for .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're in the studio... Time shifting again. We're recording this guy on uh, December 15th. Right. Yeah. And it's coming out like two weeks later, almost on the nose, December 30th. Yeah. End of the year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. All that good stuff. Hap, hap, happy, happy New Year. This is how we get Christmas off. Right. Uh, Bill Wagner's here. We're going to be talking to him. Um, sort of going to be a great discussion on GitHub for those who are uninitiated. And for those who are, I think, but it's going to be a great top-down talk about GitHub. In the meantime, one of the AppV Next guys, Brian McKay, came across this repo on GitHub that I'm going to share for Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? So what I have is a list of awesome interview questions. This is a list compiled by Maxim Abramchuk on GitHub. You can find it at uh, interviewquestions.pwop.me. And uh, this is just great. It's huge. There are questions for every kind of technology. Um, there are general questions as well. It's just awesome. And uh, this is a top trending repo on on GitHub right now that I thought I would share with you. And, and one of, just one of those reminders that GitHub's a repository for all kinds of things, not just code. That's right. Yeah. In this case, it's ideas, right? It's a curated list of interview questions. Yeah, it's cool. It's a, there's a lot here. There's a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah. That's right. And from a lot of different places, too. Mm -hmm. So we'll see what Bill thinks of that because, you know, we've obviously had to go through a lot of interviewing and it's a, it's a great topic in and of itself. For sure. But I thought that would be worth sharing. So that's what I got, Richard. Nice find. Who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 1098, one that we did with one Bill Wagner. We talked about C-sharp 6. Yeah. And this particular comment is from Dan Owens, who says, I appreciated the discussion of the decline of VB.net. I, too, had to switch, though I enjoy VB.net more. Why, again, do I need case-sensitive languages? I think yeah. that Microsoft should target VB.NET as the entry-level .NET language. Stop adding libraries and add more constructs for the beginner. Then use the language as a bridge between VBA and classic ASP to .NET. Then if programmers want to do something more complex than what VB.NET would support, they would start getting into C Sharp. That sort of follows the model of VB originally, where you would code for a while, and then when you wanted to do something really tricky, you would have to call the window APIs. I fear the complexity of .NET is that we will lose power users as a base of future programming prospects. Back in the 80s, and that's the 1980s, thank you, 
Uh, many programmers were culled from the ranks of accountants who got into programming while writing Excel macros and then VBA. I fear that bridge from PowerUser.net no longer exists. I got a couple of thoughts on this. Um, one is uh, the office team has made it perfectly plain that their next language, because they're going to move away from VBA, is JavaScript. Yeah. That that's going to be the way that you program uh, that's going to be your new macro language, essentially. And that, to me, you know, if you, what Dan's basically described, that bridge in was through Office. VB was the next step beyond that, mm-hmm. really. Right. But this larger issue of the decline of VB.net, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that there's any easy answer to that. Well, I think it's being used in, in a very particular case, right? You know, it's being used where there were developers that were VB developers that decided it would be easier to go to VBNet than it would be C Sharp. Right. And .NET came around. And so, uh, you know, a lot of that code is still still out there, still cranking away. But that speaks to a diminishing pool of developers then because sure. there's no new VB developers being made. If VB.NET isn't on the radar as a starter language, right. then it's just never going to gain any more uh, audience. That may be true. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting situation mm-hmm. to be in. Maybe Bill has some thoughts on this. Dan, thank you so much for your comments. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of the social media. We have post every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there, we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. Absolutely. And you can also tweet us. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And uh, so there you go. Also, ScottNet Rocks, the tour is coming up in January, January 18th through the 21st in Scotland. Uh, we're going to be in Glasgow. We're going to be in Edinburgh. We're going to be in Aberdeen. If you're in the area, please do stop in, but you got to sign up. So go to tinyurl.com slash scottnetrocks and check it out. Such a good name. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to have fun, my friend. We are going to have fun. Although I just got word that the Dalmore Distillery will be closed yeah. for tours when we're there, which yep. makes me sad. Yeah. But uh, I'm sure there'll be some others. I was uh, out at the annual Pwop Holiday Dinner the other night, mm-hmm. and I noticed that they had a Dalmore on the Scotch menu. Mm-hmm. And just because I was anticipating going to Dalmore, I had one, and it was wonderful. It is a big, rich, sherry cask um Scotch, yeah. no two ways about it. Very yep. much a Highland. All right. Uh, let's get to Bill Wagner. Bill is one of the world's foremost C-Sharp developers and a member of the ECMA C-Sharp Standards Committee. He's president of the Humanitarian Toolbox, has been awarded Microsoft Regional Director and .NET MVP for over 10 years, and was recently appointed to the .NET Foundation Advisory Council. Bill currently works with companies ranging from startups to enterprises, improving the software development process and growing their software development teams. He's also been very, very helpful with uh, AppV Next. Welcome, Bill Wagner. Hey, Carl. Hi, Richard. How are you doing? Hey, man. Yeah. Good to see you. Good to talk to you. Yeah, good to talk to you, too. So do you want to start right in on that email? Yeah. Let's do it. So I think that's interesting in that... um, I think JavaScript is becoming the intro language for people who are starting to program. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be an interesting thing for .NET to support, to be able to say, you can write apps with JavaScript, whether it's Office, and then move that into you know, the Windows 10 space where you can create apps with JavaScript and so on. Mm-hmm. But that's where new developers seem to be just starting to program. And, you know, there's also this sort of mythical idea that 
you know, when you learn your first language, that's the only language that you're going to learn. And you, you and I, we all know that it's not true. I mean, when you learn one language and you learn good patterns and practices, then you're picking up another language, especially if they're both in the same family, you know, they're both object oriented or they're both functional or whatever it is, uh, is, is just the way it, the way it happens. Right. But I think the other part of it is that people who are just coming to programming, they want to learn a language that will get them employed. Yep. Right. You know, and, and that makes JavaScript a good choice. Sure does. You know, in addition to being approachable. There's just so many different opportunities in that space. Yeah, absolutely. Good point. We wanted to do this show because we find that talking to developers out there, uh, you know, still haven't embraced GitHub or any kind of, you know, repository. And I know it's it's really amazing to even think that, but... There are many people, especially those who are just learning, right? You know, and uh, there are so many of them that find the whole idea of using GitHub really confusing, especially because there are so many ways to go about doing it that you sort of need to know the fundamentals in order to make good use of these tools. Yeah. So that's where we wanted to start. Let's have some fun. So Yeah. What, what we started doing and where some of this came about from my standpoint is over the past two years, I've been helping to run boot camps in the Detroit, Michigan area mm-hmm. for people that are trying to make a career change and want to learn programming and want to become developers. And one of the things that myself and the other instructors uh, really pushed is that we had to include using source control in yep. this curriculum. Because if you're writing anything that's related to a real job, you have to be able to use source control. Yeah. And we chose using GitHub because it was free. You know, any student could make a GitHub account. Everything they did in class, they were going to do in public repos. So it was free. So we just went straight to GitHub. And these were developers or students who had never programmed anything by and large. Mm. And we were starting right from, you know, the first day is file, new project, hello world. And right. let's check it into GitHub. So I think GitHub can be, and Git can be really approachable. I think some of where a lot of your listeners get really bogged down is we've come from a totally different world. Right. You know, we've been using source control systems that were all centrally based source control systems. Yeah. Whether that be Team Foundation System, you know, SourceSafe before that, um, SVN, CVS, RCS, PVCS, mm-hmm. SCCS, if you go back long enough, you know, all of these were based on the idea of one source of truth and one repository. Right. You know, so I think for a lot of our listeners that have been in, in the .NET space or professional programmers for a decade or more, Everything is based on there's there's this one server out there and it's got the history, the source code, and everything. And I'll check things out, work on it, and then check them back in. Mm-hmm. Git totally changes that model. <laughs> you know, it's it's everything you know is wrong. So let's mm-hmm. start over. And the only one that even got a little close to that was SVN. You would have this model where I would make my changes and then merge it with the master and then commit. That's subversion so that, you're talking about. Or subversion, yeah, SVN. Yeah. 
And now we have Git where every developer has an, a copy of the entire repository and all of its history. Mm. So the workflow changes completely, right? Um, I think as, as DVCS first started to get popularized, a lot of the people talking about it did a big disservice by saying, in DVCS, you don't have a central server. You don't have a central place where all your source code is. And managers and developers went, that makes no sense. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Right. Now, I got to be the acronym police here. So you're really talking okay. about a general distributed version control system. That's what yes, that stands for. Yes, so DVCS would be distributed version control versus a centralized version control. Right. And other systems uh, besides Git would be things like uh, Mercurial or Bazaar. Um, and Git is really the most popular of those at this point. And now what, a better way, I think, to express it is you still have one copy of the repository where you do all your bills and where you make you know, releases from and where everybody should view as the source of truth. But every developer has a copy of the entire repo and all history. Right. So now what happens when I'm working in a Git-based system or any DVCS system is effectively what we've done is we've separated the idea of committing to source control and the idea of sharing my work with other developers. So when I work in Git, you know, I would do something like, let's say I'm working on a new feature and I'm going to use a TDD-style development. I'll write a failing test and as soon as it compiles, I'll check that in. Right, so I've got this test that fails. I'll make the test pass, and I'll check that in. Mm -hmm. Then I'll do my refactoring and clean up the code, and then I'll check that in. Yeah. And then at that point, I probably push it to the central repository and share it with the rest of my team. So I have three or four commits based on make this failing test, make it green, do the refactoring, and now share it. Because I've separated those two tasks. So you f you first, as and I'm just trying to paraphrase what you said, you create a, a local repository first from the shared Git repository. Right. And the term we use in Git there is Git clone. So I'm going to clone the repository onto my development machine. Mm -hmm. So now I have a copy of the repository on my machine. Mm -hmm. I've cloned it. I'll now do my work. And when I commit... I commit to my local copy of the Git repository right. on my development machine. And the reason for that is if, you know, you, 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 you do those commits often enough, if you have a problem, you can roll it back before you right. even share it with the rest of the world. Correct. And then I do those commits. I might do five or six. I might get stuck, back up, and say, nope, I went down the wrong road. I'm going to do something different. And then I'll do that commit. And now when I'm ready to share what I've done, I do what's called a git push. So I'll push my changes back to the repository where I cloned from. Yeah, now this is where the the glossary is really important, you know, the vernacular. Push versus pull. You know, when I thought about, when I first heard the word pull request, to me, I mean, that before I knew what it meant, it, it sounded like I want to request so that I can pull the repository down, like a clone, you know? Right. But that's not what a pull request is, is it? 
Right. Let's we'll we'll come back to this one later when we start talking about GitHub flow. Okay. The idea of pulling and a pull request is I'm going to ask you to pull my changes into your repository. Right. Right. So that's where that term comes from. Yeah. And the the key terms in the glossary are clone, so I'm going to make a copy of your repository. Mm-hmm. Commit, which is just I'm going to commit to my local repository. Yep. Pull, which is I'm going to update changes. I'm going to pull in changes from some other repository. And then push, I'm going to push my changes to another repository. Right. So when I pull, I'm pulling in changes from somebody else. Correct. Or some some other repository. Correct. Yeah. So that's your basics of Git. Now, everybody has a copy of a repository. And now I'm going to make changes and I'm going to make all my commits locally to my repository. And then when I'm ready to share, I'll push them to the main repo. Now, one of the things that we have always done in source control is check out. You know, I want to check out this module. I want to check out this code. So that means, no, you know, when somebody else goes to check it out, they say, oh, Carl's working on that. You know, what do you want to do about that? How does that whole thing work in GitHub? So in Git and GitHub, we don't worry about that. You know, until bad things happen and you have to merge. What Git and GitHub do, if we want to get really nerdy, they keep a a graph of all the changes. Mm -hmm. So I make changes and you make changes. And if they're in the same file, Git's going to try to merge those. So it'll play my changes and then play your changes on top of mine. And using diff, it usually does a pretty good job in most cases. If it can't, you get a merge conflict, and you'll have to look at the changes between what you did and what I did and figure out how to merge those together by hand. Right. If we happen to be like in the same method or in the same, you know, same space in a class. Right. In most cases, it, it works okay. Because you're communicating amongst the team, usually. Yeah, and yeah. if you're working on different features or different bugs, you're probably not changing the exact same method anyway. Right. Where you get into trouble is if somebody's doing, oh, we're going to do a total rename of a lot of stuff. So I'm going to touch almost every file in the repository. Mm-hmm. You know, we ran into this in uh, already for the HTBox team recently is that when we inherited the code, the Microsoft team had used the term tenant to mean some organization using the already application. And working with the Red Cross and working with others, everything that we surfaced in the UI was the term organization because that was what they wanted to use. Tenant Uh didn't make sense to them. So then we had this disconnect where all the internal data structures were called tenant and everything you saw on every web page was called organization. Yeah. So we made the decision to say, let's just change all those names Tenant goes away. Everything should be organization. And uh, one of the guys that has been doing a lot for us, uh, uh, Mike Hegeseth, he went in and over a weekend, he said, all right, I'm going to make all of these changes and then merge this in. And now everybody else grab my code because otherwise it's just not going to merge because <laughs> I changed the name of everything. <laughs> you know, so we had to schedule that. Um, but other than global things like that, Git will usually merge things without too much trouble. Yeah. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Stackify. Our dev-centric friends at Stackify have been awarded PC Magazine's Editor's Choice 
for application performance management, stating the depth of application information provided by Stackify totally outshined the other products in this category. Because Stackify so successfully integrates errors, logs, and metrics into a core APM Plus tool, it's a must-have for .NET developers, which is why PC Magazine's Paul Farrell calls it one of the best infrastructure management services of 2015. Try Stackify now for free, and they'll ship you their coveted Developers Against Humanity card game. Just activate your account. Use the link bit.ly slash netrocks to build better apps faster and get your free game. I find it interesting that this sort of approach to handling source code encourages people to write a little and check in often. Right. And I think that's two of the things that really make get more popular. One is the rise of open source, mm -hmm. which means it's really, really useful to have everybody have a copy of the repo. It makes it so much easier to work from anywhere, right? I've got this distributed team. You know, maybe you're in a coffee shop. Maybe you're on a plane. You know, maybe you're just sitting in your house, whatever. You can work. It doesn't matter where you are. You've got all the history. I only need a network connection when I want to do the, the merging and do a push. And, you know, that combined with this idea, um, in open source, and, and now we should start to get into the idea of GitHub and, and some of the GitHub flow right. of in an open source project, not everybody has rights to the repo or write access. Mm -hmm. So everything I've been talking about right now is just Git in general. Right. And this is a good place to differentiate those two things. Right. So Git is a form of source control. It's supported by GitHub, by Visual Studio Online. Uh, which is getting a name change. I can't remember the new name right now. <laughs> and um, Bitbucket has, you can create Git-based repositories. Mm -hmm. You know, you could also make your own GitHub server. You can take Git, it's an open source project, run it on your own machine if you want to. Right. You know, I would prefer using one of the cloud providers. I think it's pretty easy. And then set up the repository that way. GitHub in particular is one of those hosting environments mm -hmm. I think they're one of the ones that does an incredibly good job. And that means putting your code on GitHub, maybe it's an open source project, maybe it's a private repo. Mm -hmm. Let's assume it's an open source project and anybody can access the code. And if it's a private repository, it's just a good place for you to put your code, even if it's just you, so that you're not, you know, chasing it down on hard drives all over the place. Right. And I think, you know, depending on where you are and, and what other alliances you have, you know, I have private repositories on GitHub. I also have private repositories in Visual Studio Online. Yeah. They both work absolutely fantastic. Uh, I've worked with teams that work with VSO using Git. VSO meaning Visual Studio Online. Um, right. And, and I think it's a, it's a great system. So I think there's multiple places to put the code. Especially when you're doing a project for a, a client and they don't want their stuff public. It's just, you put it in a private repository, give everybody access, and you're done. Right. So now let's talk more about going into GitHub and what GitHub as a site does and how that works in terms of open source and GitHub flow and how developers work with a GitHub-based project. Okay. So GitHub is a, is a site. You can host all your repositories there. You can decide to make them private or public. If they're public and you just create your own repository, 
you're the only one who has right access to that repository. But anyone in the world can read it, right? So you can put up your spiffy project. It's in GitHub. Anybody can download it. Anybody can look at the code. They can modify their own copy of it if they want. But they can't put those changes back into your copy because yeah. you haven't given them access. Right. So one thing I've started doing there is all of my talks recently, I put all my demo code in GitHub. Mm -hmm. So now instead of just, you know, here's the starter project in a zip and here's the finished project in a zip, it's here's the GitHub repo and I'll label branches for each step of the demo. What's also cool about that is that instead of just putting a zip file up somewhere, you can actually look in the, the, the tree of the source code, dig into any particular module and just view the source. Right. Which is great. And you can also look at the history. You know, here's how I built this app over the hour-long demo or the four-hour-long workshop, and here's every step along the way. It's not just the snapshots at the start and the end. So I think that's a that's a big plus for people who are attending my talks to see that whole history coming back later. And, uh, and I won't kid, it works nicely on stage. I can just pull forward to the next branch if a demo doesn't work. Yeah. So I got that back there. But... Um, so now let's take one of those and say if somebody says, oh, there's a better way you can do this. So they want to give me some changes. And now we're into more how you would work with GitHub. So let's say you didn't like how I did one project and you wanted to show me a better way on one of my demos. Mm -hmm. The first thing you would do is you would fork my repository into your account. Now fork rather than clone. Fork rather than clone. So now what fork does is it takes my repository on GitHub and it does a clone, but it clones it into Carl's account on GitHub. So now he has a copy that's also public. Anyone in the world can see it, but only Carl has right access to it and it's okay. hosted on GitHub. Okay. Yeah. So fork similar to a clone operation, except for the destination is someone else's account rather than some other physical storage location. Okay? Yeah. Okay. All right. So now you've made a fork. Now you're going to clone your fork and put your fork on your development machine. Okay? All right. The fork really made a put a copy of the code into your own repository on GitHub, and then you clone it down to your local machine. Right. Okay. And now you make whatever changes you want on your local machine in your local copy of the repository. And then you'll push your changes back up to your fork on GitHub, right? So code got copied from my account to Carl's account, then from Carl's account on GitHub down to Carl's machine, mm -hmm. does his work, pushes from his machine back up to Carl's account on GitHub. Yeah. Right. So now you have changes in your fork on your account on GitHub, and you want me to take those changes. Yeah. That's where a pull request comes in. You then make a pull request and you'll say, you know, I made some changes. I didn't like the way you did this. Here's how I want you to do it instead. And then I can see those changes and yeah. I can either accept them or I can comment on them and say, you know, Carl, I, I think I like some of your ideas. I don't like these. Can you clean this up a little bit and then I'll take it. Or I can just say, Carl, you're nuts. Just close this. You're wrong. Now let's say that, um, you give me a, a pull request, but before you want to actually run the code and test it and check it out. 
Mm-hmm. Is that as simple as um, accepting it in your local repository, running it, make, maybe making some changes and then accepting it? Pretty much, although I can't make the changes, right? Because I don't have rights to your fork. So you can say, you can run it, find a problem and say, yeah, fix this first. Right. Yeah. And now this gets to where GitHub can start to get confusing or get in general can start to get confusing, but conceptually, it's really not that bad. So is it as simple as just grabbing your code? Sure. I can clone your fork Mm -hmm. into a different directory on my machine and I can run your copy of the code, right? Yep. It's just another GitHub repo. I can also do a test merge so I can make a separate clone of my um, of my project in another directory on my development box and I can pull in your changes and play with it and see what's there and do something with it and then maybe even send you a pull request back to say please try this in your fork instead because they all have a common parent it will all work depending on whether or not things merge properly. Because they all have a common parent, you can just run anywhere in there and I can merge changes into another copy of the repo, okay? If you start going too far down that road, you will start getting confused and get way beyond fundamentals. Yeah. But it's important to understand since everybody has a copy of the repository, you can share code back and forth. Right. Okay, so where this really applies for a team is, let's say you and I want to pair program on something that is in a project Richard owns. One of us would decide to make a fork, add the other one as a collaborator, and the two of us can work together. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then the collaborator doesn't have his own repo. He's just cloning off the main repo. Right. Well, or he's cloning off the fork. You know, we did this in in our classes, in our bootcamp classes, when we'd have final projects and teams are working together. It's like you two are pair programming. Okay. One of you fork the repo, you know, say Jim forks the repo, you know, Jim and Mary would work together. So Jim would give Mary access to his fork Mm -hmm. and the two of them would both be checking in directly rather than doing pull requests and then the two of them would submit a pull request together into the main repo Mm. right that model works too and you know for larger teams if you have a feature team working on something there's no reason not to do that right well hold that thought because richard you know what time it is oh it must be that happy time again yeah it's time to reveal my new year's resolution I'm going to commit myself to doing a daily regimen of pull-ups, push-ups, fork-ups, spoon-ups, clone-ups, get-ups, and throw-ups. <laughs> Emphasis on the throw-up, I suspect. <laughs> uh, cough-ups might be in there, too. There you go. Wheeze-ups, perhaps. Nice. But, uh, no, it's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, do you know Swift, Objective-C, and Java? Can you use them in tools like Xcode and Android Studio? If so, awesome. For everyone else, there's NativeScript, a cross-platform framework for building native iOS and Android apps using skills you already have, JavaScript or TypeScript, CSS, and a XAML-like XML markup. 
Start building your dream native mobile apps today. Use the NativeScript CLI for free or use NativeScript in Visual Studio with a Telerik platform subscription, which enables you to build iOS apps without the glowing Apple. Get started for free at Telerik.com slash NativeScript. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Zohabe Ralph from Redmond, Washington. Golf clap for you, sir. Yeah. And Zohabe just won the Telerik DevCraft Collection, a big pile of awesome from them. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree. Just did it. To one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And now, Bill, it's your turn. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology right now, what would you buy? Oh, I got nothing. No. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) I don't need the money. Yeah, my life is so full of gadgets. There are times when I want something totally non-gadget based. You need a vacation. There we go. You buy a vacation with $5,000. That would be perfect. A vacation is someplace with no gadgets. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Yeah. Leave you on a desert island somewhere. Yep. Right. With Wi-Fi, so I can still commit and clone and push to get home. <laughs> <laughs> I got to have something to do. Yeah. Do those clone-ups. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So, are we at the point where we're going to start talking about tools yet? I want to do one thing before we start talking about tools. Okay. So, we started to introduce this idea of a pull request. And one of the uh, best bits of documentation on how to work with this is something called GitHub Flow. And the GitHub Flow guide is one that will be in the show notes. It's guides.github.com slash introduction slash flow slash index.html. And they talk about exactly how to do GitHub Flow and this idea of forking repository, starting to make some changes, submitting a pull request, and then getting that accepted. And one of the things we glossed over is that a pull request can either be here, take my code, or the start of a conversation about changes I want to make. Okay. So let's say I'm working on a project with you, Carl, and I'm working on a feature. I'll do a fork. I'll start working. And as soon as I make any changes at all, I'll open a pull request. And one of the conventions might be to say WIP for work in progress, which means I don't want you to take this code yet, but let's start reviewing it. And I can say, here's the design I'm going going for. Here's maybe how I want to fix this or how I want to make these changes. And now you can start to review that, add comments on anything. And anytime I make a commit and push back up to my fork, it updates the pull request. Mm-hmm. And you can see how the code grows while the pull request is open. And you can keep making comments on it. And that's one of the things that we use a lot with HTBox when we have new developers coming to a project Mm -hmm. is we'll say, okay, take one of the issues, start working, open a pull request, and we'll start reviewing your changes, you know, to make sure that you're following our conventions, to make sure that you've got, you know, line endings and tabs set correctly so we don't see the wall of red for diffs, but we actually really just see your changes. Mm. You know, we can review the code. If you start going down one road, we can say, wait a minute, we've already got a library to do this. Just call this function instead of writing these 50 lines of code. Right. That kind of thing. So we can help guide new developers through it. 
So that that pull request doesn't just have to be, I'm done. It can be this, here's a conversation about this feature. The thing that's amazing is that this is so much more than a protocol or a tool. It's really a way of, a methodology, right? A way of developing and communicating with each other because of what Git lets you do. Right. And that's one of the, the fundamentals of GitHub. One of their, um, their mission or their tagline is, is social coding. Right. So mm. we're working together, even though we don't see each other, we're not in the same place. Yeah. We can be working together yeah. and tools to make that happen. So I think that's, that's where a lot of it comes into play. Um, I use GitHub for Windows primarily. Yep. And one of the things I like about that is if you use GitHub for Windows, it installs GitHub for Windows. So you have a nice graphical interface onto your changes on any Git based repository that you have. And GitHub for Windows works with any Git repo. So I will use it on my um, GitHub repos. I'll use it on my VSO, Visual Studio Online repos. It works just fine. Now, they don't call it Git for GitHub for Windows anymore. They call it GitHub Desktop, right? Like, GitHub Desktop, yes. Yeah, we did a show with uh, with Amy Pelamount a while yes. back where she was talking about unifying that code base. Right. Right. So GitHub Desktop. And it also installs, if you install it on Windows, it also installs the um, command line tools for Git, which the more you do, the more you'll need. Yeah. And then you start <laughs> working with that. And in addition to that, it installs something called Posh Git, which is a set of PowerShell commandlets for Git. Oh, nice. Right. So now when you open a Git shell, it runs a script that installs these PowerShell commands for Git. Um, Keith Dalby did a lot of the work on that and open source and I believe there's been other contributors as well but then that gives you things where your PowerShell um, command line will give you what branch you're on it will tell you based on the color of the branch name if your branch is ahead or behind the remotes uh, or changes in both um, it will also tell you any changes you have in your local Working directory that's not committed, you know, new files, files deleted, files that are changed, uh, files that aren't being tracked by Git, which, you know, you may need to add to a commit. And that I find just a very, very useful tool mm. for working with Git in the command line. Now, how would you get ahead of the remote? How would you get ahead of the remote? If you make changes on your local copy, so you've done yeah. four or five commits and you haven't pushed those to the remote. You're four commits ahead of the remote. Right. Okay. Right. And 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 in danger because other people are going to be making commits in that space too, and you're going to have some merge conflicts. Right. And that's if you get both ahead and behind. Right. So you can be behind <laughs> yep. because other people have made changes to the remote. Right. You know that means there's four changes you don't have, and you've made three changes. So now let's see if those work correctly. You're out of sync in both directions. You're that's going right. to hell. Yeah. <laughs> Do you recommend? Um, you know, things like maybe Tortoise Git for newbies or people who are more comfortable with a Windows shell or or even, you know, um, Source Tree or even Smart Git. There's a there's a whole bunch of GUI tools out there. I, and I know right. all the all the big kids use command line. Is, is that where you would prefer people to just get right to the command line and stay there? Um, no, I think GitHub Desktop does a lot for you. Um, I've been using that one. 
I used to use Tortoise Git quite a bit. And Tortoise Git, the, the benefit of that is that it installs in the Windows shell, right? So you can right. You, you look at uh, the the colors of files and you know the little graphics on them that tell you what what the state of them is. Right. And if people are coming to Git from SVN and they've been using Tortoise SVN or Tortoise CVS, if you go back that far, it would be very familiar to use Tortoise Git. Yeah. And by all means, use it. Uh, The other one for a lot of our listeners that are going to be Visual Studio developers, there's a GitHub um, extension that goes plugs into Visual Studio. That's also very good. Right. So then you just stay right in Visual Studio and the GitHub extension knows what to do, and you can switch branches there. Uh, you can do your commits, you can do push, pull, and sync, and so on. Uh, and that's another good graphical tool. I found that to be a little confusing, and I found that there was a, a bit of ceremony that was required in finding the right thing at the right time uh, in the right tab, for example. I, I don't know. I just found that to be a little cumbersome. I thought it would be a lot easier than it was. Yeah, honestly, that's been what I've found so far, too. Um, I'm trying to use it a little more because I know some other people really like it. And in terms of explaining it, I want to have that option. Yeah. Um, my own workflow, as I said, is GitHub Desktop mm. and the uh, the command line tools. Yeah. The other one that, depending on where people are working with, if you look at Visual Studio Code, um, Git integration is plugged right into that as part of the Atom Editor. So if you're making any change, working in Visual Studio Code, as soon as you make changes, the little Git tab, you know, has a little dot next to it, and you can see what changes you still have to commit, and you can commit right from inside uh, VS Code. Cool. Yeah. So the so those are the main ones. Um, I would recommend anybody that they start working with Git to start becoming familiar with the command line. You know, and here. There are things that you're going to want to do that, say, Git, GitHub Desktop does, but there are better ways to do it if you really know the command line well. And this is where I think uh, we should spend a little bit of time on a couple of the kind of advanced, they sound advanced features, but once you get used to them, they're pretty simple in Git. And especially as you start working in other people's projects in open source projects, you're going to want to understand how to do and how they work. And that is uh, the concept of a squash commit. Squash commit. Squash. And the differences between merging and rebasing. Okay. So let's start with a squash commit. Okay. So let's say I've made all these changes and I've given you a pull request. We reviewed it. I've made some tweaks to it. I've now got seven or eight commits as I've made some modifications and change the names of some things to match what you want to use. So now I've got this track of, say, 15 commits to make a new feature. Okay. Mm -hmm. Before you accept the pull request, you might ask me to do a squash commit, which says take all the those 15 commits that were part of this feature development and squash them into one commit. So when I take them into master, Here's one commit that says add this new feature. Nice. Mm. Okay. So it just makes it clearer to everybody what arrived in the master. Right. So mm. then there's one commit that says added this new feature rather than add this feature, respond to Carl's comment, fix the misspelling here, change the name of a few things there, and so on. So the history then looks cleaner when once we share it with other developers. Okay. Nice. And in order to do that, I do what's called a squash commit. 
So you do, if you do any search for squash commit, you'll see the magic incantation and you say, I want to take these past five commits and make them one, give them a new commit message, and then I've committed them. Okay. Now you need the command line because in the scenario that I've mentioned, we've been saying, I've opened this pull request, I've shared my commits to my fork, and now I've squashed them. Okay, so on my local disk, right. I have one commit where there used to be 15. My fork now still has all those 15 commits. So now I have to do a git push minus minus force, where I'm telling git, I don't care what the remote repository says, take my changes and put them there. Hmm. Any changes that are in the remote that aren't in my local copy, throw them away. Okay. That sounds serious. That sounds serious. Now, you should only do that and that kind of stuff if you know nobody else has grabbed those changes because yeah. then you make things very, very hard for them. You can use uh, some technology. I think it's uh, Zapier. Mm-hmm. Notification technology, basically, to let you know when somebody has checked stuff out or what, they, what they're doing to keep up on it. Um, right. Just to just to avoid having to send out messages yourself every time. I guess mm -hmm. the the downside of that is just being deluged with lots of messages. Right. You know, and and the scenario that I just mentioned, where I made a fork, I made a pull request, we negotiated and discussed the changes, and now we want to make it look clean. You know, I can feel pretty confident somebody else hasn't cloned my fork. Right. Right. And if I go to the GitHub site, I would see if anybody has. So then I can feel safe making a squash commit. You'll pull it in, and now my stuff is clean. Okay. So that's what a, a, a squash commit is. And again, we usually only do that if we know we haven't, these changes haven't spread out into the wild. Mm, right. Okay. Now let's look at the difference between merge and rebase. And merge is something you can do in GitHub Desktop. You know, and we both have been discussing this idea that while I'm working on this feature, some other people on the team may be adding new code. Mm -hmm. Right. Working on other features. You would hope anyway. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So my code is five commits ahead and 15 commits behind master. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now I have to put those together. Now, if I do a merge and I merge the master changes into my fork, effectively what I've done is I've said, take the 15 changes on master and play them on top of my changes on my fork. Okay. And now if I look at the diffs right now between my branch and master, I will see my changes. But if I look at the history, I now see all the commits on master that I didn't have and all my changes. Yeah. Right. Those extra 15 changes turn into no ops when you merge a pull request but it looks kind of ugly and it can be harder to review. Okay. But oftentimes that's kind of what you need to do to figure out where things are going. I'm going to merge somebody else's changes into my branch and then we'll move forward from there. From the command line, you can do what's called rebase. So let's take that same scenario. Let's okay. say at version 15, I made a fork. Other developers made version 16 through 25. And I made, on my local machine, versions 16 through 20, okay? Mm -hmm. A rebase would say, take those revisions 16 through 25 from master, accept those, 
and now take my version 16 through 20 and play them on top of the tip of master, making versions 26 through 30. Okay? Yeah. And that's a rebase. Take my changes, rewind them and undo them, then fast forward everything everybody else has done, and now replay my, my changes on top of that. Okay? Wow. <laughs> Right. Sounds complicated. And it works great, right? And it works <laughs> Everything great. Everything was fine. <laughs> so in practice, I would say it's worked probably 90 to 95% of the time. Okay. And then what I have is my pull request now has a really nice, simple set of diffs, which are just my changes on top of the latest version of the master. Yeah. Okay. Works great. Except when it doesn't. When right. it doesn't. <laughs> We're back to the merge conflicts, okay? Yeah. Rebase, you can only do from the command line, as far as I know. There may be some tools, and if one of the listeners wants to add something in the comments, I'd love to hear about it. Right. But that's um, you know, that that's one of the reasons where you want to learn how to use the command line. And squash commits is another one that you have to do from the command line. Yeah, I just think it'd be tough to build a GUI for that that made sense to people. And And I like that it requires you to do a little bit more work. Right. You got to think. So it's not such a casual decision. Yeah. Right. And, and in both cases, you really have to think about it. Like when you do a squash commit, you have to know exactly how many commits you want to squash. You know, and if you get off by a few, then you're squashing the wrong things and it really looks ugly. Um, and if you're going to do the, the rebase, you can really get yourself in trouble if you're not careful. And again, after a rebase, when you push your fork up, you're going to need to do that push minus minus force. Yeah. And these do sound like things where you could mangle your source code. You really can, yes. So do it carefully. And, you know, there's this this great XKCD that says, this is Git. It works great. And then when it doesn't, you just blow away everything and clone it again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sort of like turn it off, wait a second, turn it back on. That's the equivalent in Git, right? Yep. Right, right. So, you know, those are some of the more advanced things where you start to get used to the command line. And again, once you get used to it and you get the concepts in place, not quite so hard. And, and again, that get back to that very opening thing where we started talking about that this is a distributed version control and every copy has all of the history in it. Yeah. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of, as you start sharing things, now we want the history to look the way we want it to, and that's where some of these advanced features come in. Okay. Okay. So, uh, Humanitarian Toolbox must be a great way to exercise your Git chops and your GitHub chops. Catch us up on what's going on in the Humanitarian Toolbox. So, what we're doing right now is we've been really focusing on the Already project. We had a successful pilot throughout the month of November and early December, and our Vice President Tony Serma was in Chicago working with uh, Jim McGowan from, and Sarah Miller from the Red Cross. Okay. We have some new issues and new features that we want to add to the Already project based on their feedback. Now, I, I think we feel really good that we were close. You know, They're happy with what we built, but they have really good suggestions to make it better. And now we're focusing on milestones that can get it to the point where the Red Cross is ready to say, we want to use this in a real live project, not a test pilot. Mm-hmm. So I think we're in a great place there. And just for those who have missed it, what is the Already Project? 
So Already is a project that helps organizations execute preparedness campaigns. So our pilot, our first application for this is the Chicago Area Red Cross and getting smoke detectors installed in people's homes. So we know smoke detectors save lives. The problem that we have is in many neighborhoods, we don't have the penetration that we would like to have. A lot of people don't have them. Uh, In many cases with the elderly, they have them, but the batteries have long since died and Mm. they're not wired into the household circuit, so they're not getting the beeps to warn them. So they need somebody to come change the batteries and check on them. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want the grandmothers up on the ladder trying to change them themselves. Yeah. You know, and there are volunteers that will help. So the Red Cross can organize this campaign to get volunteers to go door to door, see who has smoke detectors, who doesn't, if they do or don't have smoke detectors, if if they have them, are they working well? If they don't, let's sign them up to get one installed. There are people who have volunteered to install them for folks that need them, you know, mm-hmm. and companies that have donated the hardware for the smoke detectors. Yeah. And hopefully try to get much, much better coverage with people having smoke detectors. So I have a, a really good idea for somebody who wants to put together an invention and market it. And sure. that is, you know, the one of the reasons people disable their smoke detectors, especially in their kitchens, is because they go off when you're cooking, right? Right. And that can be a problem because, okay, we want them to go off when there's fire <laughs> and smoke. Um, so uh, c- combining that with a connect, you know, a, either, even an old connect would work great. Put a, a connect up where the smoke detector is, and if there are people in the kitchen, it doesn't uh, sound the alarm because you're there. You know there's a fire. You're in the middle of it. If there right. are not people, you know, and there's smoke and fire, then the fire alarm goes off. I like that. Isn't that a cool idea? Yeah. And then I'd want to add, I'll give you your first feature request. Yeah. I want something where if that smoke detector is then hooked up to... Um, you know, a security system right. to alert the fire department. There's some way to have it still alert the fire department because even though I'm in the kitchen right. and I know there's a fire, yeah. I know I can't deal with it. Right, right. Yeah, but I like that. Very good. Yeah. So that's where already is. And if you go to um, getup.com slash htbox slash already, you'll see the repo. If you go to the issues list, This is one of the GitHub basics we didn't really talk about. If you go to the issues list, you'll see all the tasks that we want people to work on. And what we've done there is we have assigned issues to milestones. So under the issues tab, you can look at milestones, see the current milestone, and see any of the tasks that are for right now. Grab one and start working on it. And we would love to get contributions. Very good. And to help summarize some of the things that we did, We should close with a few links. If you go to htbox.github.io, you'll see that we've got a draft first pass at a developer guide for people who want to get involved with htbox. You know, if you're new to Git, new to GitHub Flow, some of these terms of fork and clone and commit and pull request are all new. Hmm. We describe those and have links to relevant documentation on the GitHub site as to here's what fork means, here's what how GitHub Flow works, here's how to submit a pull request, you know, here's what we'll do with your code as we review it, give you a good idea of what kind of things we're looking for there and hopefully help somebody get started. And then there's two other sites that 
uh, Tony and I still have to get HDBox registered on. There is upforgrabs.net, hmm. which is up dash four dash grabs.net. And what that lists is a set of projects on GitHub. And for each project, it lists issues that have been tagged with a label, usually jump in or up for grabs that are meant to be good issues to work on if you're not familiar with the code base. So it's a good first thing to work on, a good first thing to you know get your feet wet and try something out and see if you want to get involved. And then there's a related site called firsttimersonly.com that lists projects and issues where these are specifically designed for somebody who's totally new. You Maybe you've never worked on an open source project at all under any, in any way, and you want to just see what it's like. Those are issues on projects that are meant to be a nice introduction to just try something for the first time. Great. And, you know, those will be even simpler scope than the up for grabs issues. Yeah. And that'd be a great way to get involved. And uh, if you are um, a seasoned developer listening to this and want to help a non-seasoned developer, please point them to this uh, episode. This is a great introduction for people who are getting started with GitHub. Yep. And help people out when they're contributing to your project. You know, I've been really happy with the community we've built on HTBox in that when somebody works on something, you know, we, we give good feedback. And when somebody does go in a wrong direction, we give them good feedback, not to make them go away, but to help them start going in the right direction. And it's been really positive. We've seen, you know, people who, hey, I worked on this and I did this. And we're like, okay, that's nice. We were going in another direction. Can you help us do this? And and a lot of those people have now become really solid contributors and are helping to grow a community that's that's um, really collaborative, really positive, and still trying to really keep the quality up and keep the direction up on our projects, but giving good constructive feedback to anybody who wants to join. So I'm really proud of the team that's working on already in Crisis Check and doing that. Bill, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me again, guys. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.